Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things, and then we talk about those things. And this week we read The Saga of the Swamp Thing, Volume 3, by... Alan Moore and various artists, I'll shout out the artists when we get to their individual issues, because it's not the same team on every issue in this volume. This is the story arc that Alan Moore refers to as the American Gothic story arc. Yes, it's also what I referred to in a previous episode as Swamp Thing and Constantine's Occult Road Trip. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is a road trip. Sort of. It's an inconsistent road trip. It's a road trip where they keep going back to the home base and then out again. It's not um, a single line across the country. It's really like two story arcs put together. You have this sort of environmental story arc with Nuke Face. And then you have the story arc which introduces John Constantine and is also this sort of homage to like classic horror monsters that's happening in the other part of it i don't know if it's really two storylines in one it's more like one storyline ends and then another one starts the there's two issues of the nuke face papers and then growth patterns happens which deals with the aftermath of the nuke face papers and introduces the john constantine thing and then that storyline takes off in the next issue and occupies the rest of this volume and i think most of the next one it's weird, though, because the, the Nuke Face story plot is only two issues. Yeah. And it seems like for a while they had longer story arcs. I think two issues is about... I mean, uh, the, the Arcane one was longer, I guess. And the sort of over arc of, like, Swamp Thing getting Abby back and confessing his love was longer. But for the most part, stuff's sort of been, like... Two issues. The Nuke Face thing is two issues. The vampire one in this is two issues. The plantation story in this is two issues. Yeah. I think, like, the Floronic Man one takes a while to get off, but once he's the actual antagonist, that storyline was only really, like, two issues long. Well, this is volume three, but it comprises issues 35 to 42. So, let's get started talking about the first story the beginning the nuke phase i think it's interesting to note that this issue has a lot of background that are newspaper clippings and from what i read online they're actual new uh, they're actual clippings of current articles that were happening at the time related to nuclear energy and environmental waste issues yeah so the uh, art team on this is the same on both of these issues nuke phase papers part one and two uh, they're both drawn by Steve Bissett and then inked by John Tottleman. Uh, they're, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of this storyline. I think it's got that kind of frustrating thing that a lot of older, uh, more environmentally minded stories have, which is they didn't know about climate change yet and they were very concerned about nuclear power. Yeah, well that, I mean, that's kind of... I mean, of this is more about like unauthorized dumping and stuff like that, which is a little bit better. It's not just that like nuclear power in the abstract is bad it's more about the sort of criminal negligence of corporations yeah and i think it's kind of like 
in the late 70s and towards the mid-80s, the focus on being environmentally conscious was about fighting pollution. It's when people started first learning about, like, the holes in the ozone. This issue, even though it's heavy-handed in this sort of handling of, like, this um, environmental message about pollution and environmental damage, I think it's interesting because it sort of shows, like, the progression from the late 70s where people were concerned with pollution and the environment and the whole sort of what came out of like Silent Spring and Rachel Carson's concerned about the environment. And then you have this story, which is essentially a drifter who is literally addicted to nuclear waste. And I think that's sort of, that's what makes it sort of seem heavy handed to me. So what happens in this issue is a company starts dumping nuclear waste into an abandoned mine below a town in Pennsylvania. It's obviously a stand-in for Centralia, but they don't call it that by name. I forget the name that he uses for the town. He said the the character of Nukeface says the name a bunch, but I don't I don't remember what it was. Is Nukeface created just for this yes. story? It's not a pre-existing character. Yeah, and I don't believe he ever appears again. Though the end of this issue implies that he will, but I don't think that was ever bit off. Uh, so they're dumping waste into these mines, and there's. One guy who's still been living there since the mine was closed, and he be, finds and begins to drink the nuclear waste, which turns him into this, like, mutant. I think it's never explicitly stated, but I think in a way he's kind of to nuclear waste as Swamp Thing is to plants. Like, he's some sort of avatar of pollution because it doesn't harm him we we see him expose another guy to the same waste that he's constantly drinking and that guy is like dissolved by it whereas nuke face is just sort of rendered loopy yeah and, and well the town is called blossomville yeah and there's like two concurrent plots there's the plot of nuke face who is in some kind of fugue state where he's talking to a man that he for some reason, thinks is one of his friends from Pennsylvania, and he's telling him about the nuclear waste that has been moved from Pennsylvania to Louisiana, and that's why he's been sort of working his way down the coast to try to find more nuclear waste. And then there's also the sort of subplot of a husband and wife. The wife is expecting a child, and the husband is... He's the corporate inspector that basically set all this into motion. Right. It's his fault that this is happening. And he is like haunted by this guilt that he feels over not checking to see if there were any people left in the town. And he has the, the depth of all the derelicts. Because that's the thing that they, they concrete over the waste in Blossomville and move the operation to Louisiana because, uh, drifters and derelicts start going missing, presumably because Nukeface is, finding them and sharing his stash with them, which we get a glimpse of what that does to people when he interacts with the first duty meets in Louisiana. I wasn't quite sure, but was the inspector himself dirty? Is that why he felt so guilt-ridden? I think he's his just wife, negligent. His wife is very religious, very compassionate, and she wants to help people. I think if you think about this volume as being sort of a homage to horror monsters then Nukeface kind of fits in there because he kind of is that sort of 
horror movie trope of like the dangerous drifter Mm -hmm. and then he becomes this sort of predatory monster but instead of being like a classic sort of hammer film monster he's like a new kind of monster for the modern age yeah but there's like a weird religious thing around him too with the wife like nuke face is like a radiation messiah she finds him sleeping alone and lays with him and there feels like there's all of this like weight of biblical imagery behind him that i'm not really sure what the purpose of it is yeah and i think it kind of says it sort of also sets this sort of tone that swamp thing now is becoming aware of incidents that are happening outside of his realm that are now affecting the natural world yeah so as the waste and nuke face begin to approach the swamp swamp thing begins to have prophetic visions apocalyptic visions about uh the arrival of the waste and this but this is also the kind of start of a trend that i don't as much as i like this volume and i like these stories this is the start of a trend that i don't like that much which is that swamp thing basically doesn't do anything in this story well i think there's one thing that he does is that once he comes into contact with nuke face he gets poisoned and his body starts to disintegrate and that sets the sort of like little pellet in his mind that perhaps he can regenerate so when he meets constantine he's already sort of on that road to self-awareness of when he can sort of re put his i guess essence back into the green and then grow a new body and then pull his consciousness into that body therefore sort of making himself immortal in a lot of ways yeah so the resolution of this whole nuke face thing is they dump the waste in the swamp nuke face shows up he and swamp thing have a one-sided fight where nuke face doesn't realize that they're fighting and his touch melts swamp thing who begins to slowly die on the ground Nukeface is unable to retrieve the waste that he desires and needs from the mud of the swamp. And he also dies, sort of. Uh, the um, increasingly paranoid inspector goes out looking for Nukeface and fails to find him. His wife does find him and tries to help him because she thinks he's, you know, this uh, innocent soul in need. Which he, like, kinda is. And she ends up sleeping near him. And when the inspector finds out the next day, he takes it as a sign that she has become unclean and irradiated, and he runs off, never to be seen again. Nukeface wakes up, reborn, again, weird messiah imagery, and wanders off, with the implication being that he's just, as long as this stuff keeps happening, he's always going to be around, and he's always going to find the waste, and he's always going to, uh, through his actions, bring to light the, the horrors that these people are perpetrating in the name of greed i did do some quick research on this issue this issue came out i guess the cover date was in 1985 yeah which puts it it predates chernobyl which is 1986 Mm -hmm. but it's happening at the same time that they're building three mile island yeah that's what i assume because with the pennsylvania stuff yeah i assume this was inspired by three mile i wasn't sure if it happened before after the the uh, you know the accident yeah, it's kind of like, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. I feel like this was supposed to go somewhere it didn't go. I assume that, my take on this has always been this story feels weird because it's the first act of a story. We don't get the 
other two acts of, which is like at some point I imagine Alan Moore had a plan for Swamp Thing where it ended with him fighting Nuke Face or whatever Nuke Face has become by the end of the book. But he becomes much more concerned with other things and a lot of this environmental stuff and especially this particular strain of it kind of falls away because there really isn't much resolution we don't find out if anything happened to the inspector's wife and unborn child. We don't find out what happened to the inspector. Nukeface suffers no consequences and just kind of wanders off. The only thing that really matters from this coming forward is that Swamp Thing's physical form is dying. Yeah, and I think that that sort of really becomes important in the later issues. I think what doesn't hold up for me is this sort of drifter kind of thing. It kind of seems a little bit dated and like... You know, kind of, I'm sure even at the time, insensitive. It does feel a little fucked up that the problem is being caused. I mean, I don't know. I'm of two minds about it. I definitely think it's kind of fucked up that the problem is being caused by corporations and the mechanisms of industry, but is personified through a homeless person, someone who has been destroyed by industry. Because he is a, he is a uh, out of work minor. Right. Before he ever becomes Nukeface. But then on the other hand, I do think it's kind of a nice touch that the problem is being caused by industry and the consequences are embodied through this suffering worker. Yeah, and I kind of think like... In but the, then he becomes a monster. I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. But that's like kind of the political climate of the 80s. This sort of, you know, you have the Reagan kind mm-hmm. of um, dismissive attitude by the wealthy for the lower classes and for the people with, you know, addiction or mental illness problems where they're sort of just pushed out on the street. You have a huge growth in um, homeless populations about people who need social services, but there's no social services for them. There's this whole sort of backlash against, well, big corporation, it's towards the end of the 80s. You're getting to the point where it's like the, the stock market is not as great as it was. It's not sort of this whole... Like, the middle class don't embrace that whole, like, greed is good, stock market, Wall Street, Tom Tom Wolf novel kind of thing. And I think it's sort of a reflection. It's supposed to be, like, a cultural reflection as well as, like, an environmental message. But it's kind of, like, really muddled. And I wonder if it's because, like... like I wish that Swamp Thing had reached out. And tried to help Nukeface. I wish this was there was more compassion in this story. I think it's the thing that really bugs me about it. I also think it's not so much the drifter thing that feels like gross and dated. It's the like the concept of the wino, which yeah. is like a thing that doesn't really exist. Like it's not a, a, a archetype that really exists in the popular consciousness anymore. But it was like just like taken as a given that there were just like these guys. That hung around and were drunk all the time and they're winos and there was no, you know, they were just, they just existed because they existed and the culture was largely uninterested in exploring why this was a phenomenon. And Nukeface feels a lot, he's trading on a lot of that imagery. Let me take it back to episode number one mm-hmm. where we talked about Flannery O'Connor and we talked about this whole Southern Gothic, this Gothic horror and... If Alan Moore called this the American Gothic story arc, 
was he trying to pull in on that sort of southern gothic horror because if he was then the use of a drifter and a hobo would make sense because in a lot of southern gothic there's always that mysterious stranger that comes to town and wreaks havoc so like in that context it makes a little bit of sense like he's pulling on that sort of literary genre of the southern gothic when swamp thing actually meets nuke face he doesn't even really well swamp swamp thing really never has a conversation with people he he just shows up and starts whomping. It's like the only com- person he's had a conversation with was the kid from the Monkey King story. Yeah, so I mean, I I can totally understand that. Like he'd come in contact with Nukeface, sense that there's a danger because yeah. things around the swamp are dying. He mm. just, he senses that there's this sort of corruption. You know, the, these barrels have been added. So his immediate response is he's getting in there, and as soon as he touches Nukeface, he starts to get poisoned it's just like i feel like what we know about swamp things past in the beginning of this story he should have more of a connection to this character especially after all the stuff that like sunderland did to him but I think and then like we know that he died in fire and science or alec holland died in fire and science and the swamp thing rose from it and he's still carrying this trauma of a man he never was like i feel like he should he and nuke face should get each other on some level i have two things to say about that the first is what it's telling that when well the swamp he needs to learn yeah and i think that's what a lot of this the underlying story arches and when john constantine shows up is that he realizes he needs to learn more about himself and elementals and the powers that he has and i think he's sort of learning that he he's learning by sort of blundering along and accidentally discovering things and that's what this nuke face is showing that he learns to start regenerating his body after he is poisoned. And then when John Constantine shows up, he, he makes a conscious effort to say, I need to learn more about myself and my powers. And John sort of leads him along by saying, yes, I can teach you those things. I also think it's interesting that when he starts to regenerate in the second issue, he makes a point of becoming aware that he needs to learn how to regenerate without the poisons the bio you know restorative element that he that the scientists created that made him in the first place so he's learning that he can't be dependent on you know like some kind of scientific formula to help him survive yeah it does raise the like on a on a very nerdy level it makes me ask the question is the body is a body that swamp thing makes in the swamp stronger than a body he makes somewhere else because he's making it out of plants that have been exposed to the bio-restorative formula? I don't know, because he specifically says he's going to have to learn how to regenerate without that formula. Does he say that? I know he says he doesn't. Later on, he says he doesn't need it. He's evolved beyond it at some point. But uh, that doesn't happen until after this new phase stuff. The new phase stuff ends with him him dying. And that's the best part of these two issues, is is him... Uh, dissolving, and he preaches out psychically to Abby. And that's when you get this storyline when you realize that the company man and his wife are impacted by these decisions, or the lack of action that the that the man took in not dealing with the, the toxic waste that was being disposed. Yeah. yeah, Monroe, that's his name. 
But I think it's kind of weird. It's like she's such a wholesome lady, and like part of her thing is she drinks a lot of milk. Yeah, she <laughs> keeps bringing up milk. Um, that's also one of the weird things in comics where uh, she is continually referred to as fat, but is not drawn to look any different <laughs> from any other woman in the comic. But for some reason, we're supposed to know that she is is notably uh, bigger. I guess I don't know. It's weird. I don't know why that matters or why they keep bringing it up. I like at the end where he's like, heads up, America, here I come. It's like he's sort of proclaiming that like the nuclear age, the nuclear problems that people are going to be dealing with are coming. It's kind of prophetic when you think like just one year later, there's the big Chernobyl incident and, you know, there's all these sort of problems that are coming out of the dealing with the science of creating nuclear energy. Yeah. Because, like, in the 50s and the 60s, nuclear energy was touted as, like, the, like, wonder energy that was going to solve the, like, crisis. And then in the 70s, you start having, like, energy crisis, oil, you know, problems and things like that. So people are kind of more open to the idea that something so small could create a whole bunch of energy, but I don't think they really thought about the fallout, literally the fallout from, like, these kinds of, like, technologies. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a very, like, chilling ending. Uh, do we have anything else to say about the nuke phase stuff? I mean, it's one thing... We don't know... Like, at this point, if you're reading the comic issue to issue, you actually don't know if he's going to survive. Because the last thing that happens is he says to Abby um, that he's developed this plan where he's going to let his body die. He's going to go send his mind into the green and let his body die and try and grow a new body. And if it works, I'll see you soon. And then he completely dissolves into blue goo. And that's the last we see of Swamp Thing in this issue until the next one, which would have been a whole month later. Yeah, and I think the next one, the next issue doesn't even open with Swamp Thing. It opens... It does open with Swamp Thing, though. You just don't know it's him. Yeah. It opens with a, a an open seed with a little, like, um, trail of, like... I don't know what you call it, but, like... The sprout. That's the sprout coming, coming out, of, out of the seed. And then it cuts to, to Abby in a diner. Yeah. I think... I honestly think that Alan Moore cares less about Swamp Thing being an environmental messenger than the original creators. Uh, maybe. I know the early Swamp Thing comics were not terribly environmental. I think, I what I imagine happened was, and this also happens with uh, Animal Man, with, uh, with, I think Alan Moore maybe started the comic with the idea that like, oh, this is going to be about the environment and this is going to be about... Swamp Thing as the hero that protects the not just the world, but the environment specifically. And then he becomes much more interested in the, like, metaphysical and spiritual idea of the Swamp Thing and his romance with Abby than he does with the environmental stuff specifically. Uh, I think it's telling that, like, we get in a couple of stories in this volume after this that are not about the environment really at all. They're about social... Stuff, right. but they're not, like, dealing with pollution or poaching or whatever. And I was going to say, that also happens with Grant Morrison's Animal Man run, where that starts off being, like, Animal Man's going to be, like, the PETA superhero, and then ends with him 
in a metafictional overspace talking to his own creator. And it's like, wasn't that about animals at some point? I th- Yeah, I definitely see this sort of connection with the next arch of, of stories that all of the creatures, while on the surface being sort of traditional horror monsters, do represent sort of a social issue. Yeah. And I think that's important. What I really love about this issue, especially the growth patterns, is every page has a circle and it has a day on it and it shows you how how slowly Swamp Thing is growing. So you have a circle and then fanning out from the circle is the storyline with Abby and John Constantine and what else is going on. So it's kind of like while Swamp Thing is regrowing himself, these things are happening and you can kind of follow both story plots at the same time. Yeah. Does this cover, how, how many days does this cover? Let me see. I think 11 days total. No, 13 days. Uh, until the end of the issue. I think it's interesting, too, in the first page when Abby... Oh, no, no, it's more than that. I'm sorry. When Abby is talking to her friend at the diner, she's craving vegetables. Yeah, so also, at some point, when she's zoning out and somebody says, you got to face it, your husband's a vegetable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, they're talking about Matt. Uh, this issue is really good. I think this is the best issue in the volume. And like you said, it's it's structured around covering Swamp Thing's regrowth. Uh, from a tiny seed next to a soda can to a full-sized, full-grown swamp thing. But intercut with that, we get uh, Abby dealing with her anxieties over her her two loves being in these weakened states. One in a coma and one uh, is a seed. And then also a mysterious British gentleman uh, talking to some people about a coming threat of indeterminate scope and origin. I think this is the point where Swamp Thing turns more to being sort of like this supernatural story arcs. And I think like, not only is it sort of the monsters are this social comment and you get to see, you get to meet John Constantine and sort of learn a little bit about what he's doing, like as almost like a paranormal detective. And, but then it's sort of, Leaves you with more questions about both John Constantine and Swamp Thing. So, yeah, so we get a few hints at what's coming. We know that um, some people don't believe whatever something is coming back, and it is being brought back by some collective. Also, the image of a child with his head on backwards is important. At least one of the people that he talks to claims that. Uh, it's not supernatural. It's a massive extragalactic energy field that got drawn inside a black hole 8 billion years ago. Uh, one of them thinks it's Cthulhu. One of them thinks it's the devil. Uh, one of them doesn't... I don't think the last person he talks to even really knows. Uh, he's very concerned about this. He's trying to like gather allies and information. And then the, the last person that he talks to is this uh, artist in New York... And she sketches this being, the the child with his head on backwards, who then later manifests in her apartment and drives her out the window to her death. And then with this sort of guilt hanging over him, he finally goes to talk to Swamp Thing, who's it, mostly regone. It really gives you the impression that John Constantine is like an operative for some kind of official or unofficial agency. 
if you, it looks like he has, he shows up and it's implied that he has lots of information and lots of resources and he has a sort of network of like operatives that provide him with information. I have a theory. It's another one of my theories about, I think the plan changed at some point. I think that the plan at some point was to reveal that he was some sort of fallen angel because he just knows too much. Even once you know who he is, it doesn't make a ton of sense that he knows like about the plant elementals. But see, that's the thing. That's a whole chronic problem with John Constantine. There's two chronic problems with John Constantine. He implies that he knows a lot of information and he never shares it. And he makes terrible life choices that always affect the cases that he's working on. I mean, we see that in this issue, even though he's very mysterious in this. We already see, like, before he's even really done anything in the story, we've already seen him fail. Because he gets one of his, or one of his friends is killed uh, before he's even done anything. But let's talk about the fact that Abby is in love with the Swamp Thing, but knows nothing about growing vegetables or fruit. And she literally sprays him with pesticides and then drowns him with too much water to the point where he has to grow a mouth so he can tell her to stop trying to take care of him. I think it's sweet, though. Um, I thought, I'm really surprised that you have not brought up little baby swamp thing where he kind of looks like a monkey (laughs) and she laughs at him because his voice is really squeaky she says he sounds like jiminy cricket yeah it's it's pretty funny he's the original baby Groot but he's obviously drawn to be like he's supposed to be both cute and kind of grotesque at the same time uh i have a question about swamp thing though why does he keep growing ears I don't know. Like, he has ears, and it's weird. (laughs) I like the panel where it's day 12, and all the panels put together make up a large version of Swamp Thing's face. Yeah. This is when he starts to look like Swamp Thing again, and not like a little little Swamp Thing gremlin. And that is when the, the next page is when Jerem Constantine finally shows up in the back of Abby's car. I like how he refers to himself as a nasty piece of work, and that his nickname for Swamp Thing is Chief. Yeah. I mean, he's he's very, like, antagonistic towards Swamp He's mean to him. He, he basically calls him an idiot. Well, I think that's, that's John Constantine. That's another sort of thing, and you see this a lot in his own comic book. He's, like, a little bit of, like, a pompous dick. And he's, like, really... Like, even when he's not successful... With his plans, he kind of acts like it's not his fault that they didn't work out. Oh, the death happens after he goes to see Swamp Thing. He in the next issue, he's is when he learns about it. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, I think he he is already punished for his hubris in this issue, like before he's he's even really. So he talks to Swamp Thing and he convinces Swamp Thing that he needs him to help him with these problems, and he sort of implies that the first problem they have to deal with is. Something that a previous elemental... No, it's him. Oh, it's him. This is a callback to a pre-Alan Moore Swamp Thing story. Okay, so there's a point where he has to clean up a mess that he himself has created. Before he was aware that he was this manifestation of Swamp Thing. Yeah, and so also Constantine, he says that the bad guys, whatever, whoever they may be, their plan involves 
making people believe in magic more than they already do. And part of what they're going to do is... Let me see if I can find the line. Uh, is it in this where he says they're going to use all the old frighteners? Yeah. That's what makes me think that this that's the sort of nod to the Hammer film. Does this storyline... Don't tell me. Don't spoil it. Does it resolve itself? Is there a reveal of what? Yes. E- okay. Yeah. This is this is kind of the core. This storyline with Constantine and this thing coming back and the the raising of people's belief in the supernatural is kind of the core of Alamore Swamp Thing Run. So while Constantine is introducing himself to Swamp Thing, there's sort of a montage. That's happening at the same time where whatever entity is coming to fruition that Constantine needs to get Swamp Thing to help him with, that entity wreaks havoc amongst his network. It creates, it's very similar to the Arcane thing. It creates like a psychic feedback uh, that causes like one of of his associates to have a seizure, uh, one of them to have this like, because so the people he talks to are... Um, this like woman punk, in a this yeah, like punk, punk woman in a club, a nun, a nerd, and his artist friend. And at the same time that the artist is being attacked by the, it, it's it's eventually revealed to be called the brujeria, right? The but creature it looks like a mummy. Yeah, it's like a person with their head cranked around backwards, and one of their hands like sewn into their back. Yeah, I didn't know. Is that? A reference to something else, or is that just a creature that he created? I don't know. It seems like an oddly specific thing to like have your left hand sewn into your back. I don't know if he's drawing on real occult um, stuff or not, but while that's attacking the artist, the um, everybody else experiences some kind of like break in reality because of this. So there's like something is rippling, reaching out into the world. And causing ripple effects in a similar way to uh, what Arcane did when he was in Cable's body. Right. And I think it's never explicitly stated, but I think there's some sort of implication that, like, those events probably made it easier for this stuff to happen now. But I think what happens with Swamp Thing is he realizes that he is vulnerable. And it is taking him too long to learn how to master his powers. So John Constantine sort of dangles this vague, like, idea that he knows a lot about the plant elementals and he will help Swamp Thing learn more about who he is and the powers that he has. But the only way he'll tell him that is if he goes to the Rosewood, the place where the first plot point happens, to help him fix a problem that Swamp Thing created. Yeah. And so Abby doesn't want him to go because she doesn't want him to leave the swamp because up until this point in the first two volumes, most of the action takes place near or in the swamp where he was created. Yeah, and she just watched him die. And like, if it, it's like, I think t- there's this like idea that if, if it happened faster, if he hadn't been slowly dissolving and I had the time to, to think, he probably would have died permanently. Uh, but he ultimately, the, the curiosity is too much. And to Abby's chagrin, he agrees to go to Rosewood. 
Oh, I just want to say that this issue, the growth patterns issue, is drawn by Rick Veach and inked by John Toddleben. So then we go on to issue 38 and 39, which is still water. And fish story. And fish story. And then this sort of deals with... Vampires. Vampires. So... And the the vampires, and I thought, I I was channeling my inner name. I was like, what do these vampires stand for? And I think it's like a comment on class and society. Uh, Yeah, I think this is maybe also a story about colonialism. Of course. Uh, So, (laughs) I really like this issue. I really like this whole volume. I know it's really rough on the Nuke Face stuff, but there's still stuff in the Nuke Face story that I like a lot. Uh, But I especially like, now that we're cooking... And we're in the American Gothic story. Like, th- this is is prime Swamp Thing. This is some good, good shit. And this is really, like, takes, like, the classic horror creature and then sort of the classic, like, tropes of what makes a scary story and really puts them together sort of in a modern way. Yeah, I think this is, like, this is, um, this is Alan Moore playing a game. Because it's, like, obviously he's a student of horror. He cares a lot about horror. He writes a lot of horror stuff. And all the traditional horror monsters have, like, an, an impl- social implication. Like, what, what a, they have a thing that they represent. And this is him... The In these stories, he's I think he's specifically challenging himself to take those classic monsters and twist them to represent a different thing. So in this case, like, the vampire... We've talked about this before on the podcast. is like, traditionally a symbol of, like, the aristocracy and decline. Like, that's the Dracula thing, is... It, uh, some oftentimes they're used to represent like fear of foreigners or like you know individuals with power and money but no morality taking hold of society. And here they represent uh, Americans settlers. I also thought it like maybe it was like sort of that's why I thought it was about class because you sort of have these sort of uh, punk rock vampires that are corrupting this nice wholesome. Midwest American teenager, they transform him into a vampire. Well, what we get are two communities, Rosewood vampires and the people in the surrounding towns, who both want the same thing, which is to live a quiet and peaceful life and have a place to raise their children. But one of each of them pursuing that goal is incompatible with the other one pursuing that goal. In order for the peaceful to live peacefully, the vampires need to be gone. In order for the vampires to live peacefully, the people need to die. And so that's why I think it's kind of this story about like settler colonialism. It's like you, you can't like you can't both get the, you know, like these people can't just move in and live here peacefully because the very act things that they need to do to achieve the lifestyle they want is going to destroy the people that already live here. Yeah, but I mean, I guess what happened was they had a vampire problem in Rosewood, Illinois. Yeah, and that was like, if I'm remembering this story correctly, that was like a classic, like, rowdy bikers show up to town story, which is why the vampires look the way they do. And that was less about class, and it was more about Swamp Thing punching some no-good motorcycle hippies. With big beards and iron cross tattoos, who also happen to be vampires. And he solves that problem by flooding the town. And the reveal in this is that the vampires hid in the airtight freezers in the grocery store and survived the flooding. Because a lot of this is about 
it, it's weirdly very important to this story that vampires can't cross running water. Right. So when he floods the town, he creates sort of like a reservoir where the water is technically still. And they're able to, under the water, live and create a society and finally start to be able to breed. And it be- he accidentally creates the nearly perfect environment for the vampires because the sun can't get down there. Nobody can bother them. They don't need to breathe. And there's also a weird pseudoscientific explanation for the running water thing that Constantine offers up, which is that vampirism is caused by a bacteria and it's anaerobic and exposure to oxygen kills it and running water is a way to efficiently push oxygen into a space. I think that I I didn't do a lot of research, so don't quote me as being 100% correct. I think in the 80s, this whole Ramsey Campbell... Oh, this is very Ramsey Campbell. Yeah, and I think that that's when this sort of a lot of modern horror starts to put this idea that um, vampirism is a disease as opposed to sort of... Yeah, I think it's almost sort of two diverging philosophies where you have like the Anne Rice stuff, which is digging very deeply into the like romanticized version of the vampire and i think as an anticipation or reaction to that you have this strain of like let's make vampires as monstrous as possible and then so you get stuff like this where there we see a vampire child at one point spoiler alert for the next issue and it is like a fish monster yeah it's like a a bipedal piranha and i think it's sort of the the way that this whole thing gets kicked off is that there's a bunch of wholesome teenagers who are deciding to be bad. And one of the ways they're being bad is they're going to go swimming in this reservoir, even though their parents told them to stay away from it. So they go swimming in there and one of the kids is attacked and he's drawn under and he becomes a vampire. Yes, and the other children reveal themselves as cowards who would abandon a dying man. And they run away and they leave their friend there. And then eventually, compelled by guilt... They one of them brings their parents back to the the lake. In the meantime, um, Swamp Thing walks around under the water, and like I I just love the the imagery of the like sunken town in this perfectly silent water, this like suburban Atlantis full of waiting predators is really compelling and interesting. Also, the art in this first issue is by Stan Walk, and I think the inks are by Tottleman again. I like when he comes out of the water and he was like, hey, I'm whole. It took me less time. And John Constantine like looked at his watch and was like, took you long enough. Yeah, you're very exacting. We find out that the vampires have like a queen, but not like a, like in the sense that ants have a queen. Right. She's about ready to release a brood of like vampire fish children. Vampire eggs. That are going to come up on land, and that's ostensibly what they're there to stop. Yeah. I like this sort of stereotype kind of, like, depiction of these, like, mid-80s punk rock bad guys, you know, with the mohawks and the tattoos and the leather jackets, and it's sort of like the iconic depiction of, like, British punk rockers. Like, one of them even has, like, a tattoo that says, like, Sid lives on it. Mm-hmm. So Constantine wants... He doesn't really help him, though. That's the thing. 
He, he wants sort of, Swamp Thing to do it himself and figure it out on his own. But he says, come with me and help me and I'll give you information. But what he ends up doing is just goading. Well, the so other he's thing a terrible that, mentor. The other thing we're missing in this issue is is that Constantine finds out about uh, the death of his friend, whose name I wish I could remember, but I'm dumb and bad. Uh, he goes drinking in a bar and he gets in a fight with some bikers. And this is sort of the, the, the self-destructive behavior that's very common in John Constantine. So where he gets drunk enough and antagonizes someone to beat him up because he feels like crap. Yeah. And so it's entirely possible that he all, uh, had every intention of actually helping and teaching Swamp Thing. And then just showed up in a shitty mood and decided to, to in the same way he did with the bikers, pick a fight with the plant elemental. <laughs> Uh, and so the big thing that happens in this issue, though, is that the the vampire queen lays her eggs, and one of the vampires fertilizes them, and now there is a brood of vampire eggs about to hatch. Yeah, and that's pretty much when John Constantine shows up and berates Swamp Thing for not getting there fast enough. Oh, no, this, so the kid doesn't bring his parents. He goes back to the lake to check on his friend and is attacked by the now vampirized friend and the other vampires. Right. And then I think this is the part where it's the wholesome teenager corrupted by bad influence. And now this influence is spreading through the town. You know, that's an, a typical horror trope, you know, with this like sort of plague that's attacking the town. Yeah. Um, and so then in the next issue, which is, uh, Drawn by the set again. We get sort of alternating with the town being whipped into hysteria and eventually deciding to go look for the kids with this story of the vampire eggs hatching and feeding on each other until eventually only the biggest and strongest vampire baby survives, which is this like weird bipedal piranha bat monster. Uh, it kicks Swamp Thing's ass. But. Meanwhile, the teenage vampire is also wreaking havoc in the town. Yeah, well, this is a very very chilling part where his family shows up and he's, like, obviously not the same kid anymore. He's this predator and he, try, he like, fucks with them and preys on their, like, insecurities and tries to lure his mom into the water to eat her. And then the, uh... The uh, the vampire ch- baby rises up out of the water behind him in the darkness and starts to attack them. And Swamp Thing has, after being, you know... Literally torn apart by the fish vampire monster. Yeah, he's reached out into the green and he takes control of the, like all of the plants and trees in the mountain above the town. And we get this great image of like Swamp Thing as landscape... Where he unleashes a waterfall to flood the to um move all the water out of Rosewood, undoing what he did before and finally killing the last of the vampires, and then he is berated by John Constantine because his actions have in, were inefficient and some more people in the world believe in vampires than did before, which means that the bad guys he's trying to fight, who are a bigger threat than the vampires themselves, got at least a little bit of what they wanted. Well, I think it's, I think it's interesting because it's sort of, this is like Swampling learns skill number one, 
And what he does in the swamp, which takes 18 days, is like, you know, step one of his regeneration. And then he's goaded by by John Constantine to travel. Mm -hmm. And then he regenerates and it takes hours. And then he gets torn apart by this fish monster. And he realizes he needs to pull the power from the green to build this elemental power. And instead of regenerating quickly, he transforms himself into the landscape. And then at the end, after he pulls that water down, he's still completely decimated. But then, goaded on again by John Constantine, he regenerates very quickly. Yeah, we have this cool series of panels where he's talking to Constantine as he's reforming. And they're like, they're in the same position, so it's, the implication is this is happening in a matter of seconds. But the, also, before that, we get this page um, where, uh, he said, where Swamp Thing is de-flooding the town, draining the town. And the captions are, the water, the water is moving. It no longer stands content in its own slime and putrefa- putrefaction. Putrefaction. It runs, runs eager to rejoin the river. Running water, one by one we melt. Flesh suddenly made liquid, or skeletons. Our skeletons undress themselves. Why must we be destroyed? We ask for so very little. Only a home that we could call our own, some livestock to provide food, and a safe place to raise our children. And I think that's where why I, I see the story as being more about. Uh, colonialism than I do about class like that feels like him laying out like the thesis of this story and it feels like he's riffing less on class conflicts and more on stuff like Israel and Palestine and like South Africa yeah that makes sense but I think this is the part I guess now Swamp Thing's thing is wherever there is greenery he can assemble a new body because at the end of the story john constantine tells him he wants him to go to maine and swamp thing just disintegrates himself into like a little mound of tendrils Mm -hmm. and then you see john constantine walking off makes a joke about waiting for the bus he talks to a skeleton and makes a joke he says don't worry there'll be a a three showing up in a couple of minutes (laughs) And then he walks off. And it's dedicated to the late memory of Greg Irons. I don't know who that is. Uh, yeah. So that's that's uh, Still Waters and Fish Story. So that's our first taste of this uh, American Gothic storyline. What, what do you think of this? This is a, it's a, it's you know this marks a big change from a lot of the stories we've gotten so far. It's not in Maine. Uh, not not Maine. It's not in the swamp. It's not in Louisiana. He's out on his own. Abby's not around to as a supporting character. It's entirely dependent on the Swamp Thing to solve this problem. I think it's smart because if you thought about like thirty more issues where he just sat in the swamp passively waiting for bad things to happen, that it would get kind of repetitive and boring. Yeah. So this at least this sort of ability to manifest himself in different places gives a lot more flexibility to the storyline. And I think bringing in John Constantine sort of cements this as this is a horror comic. So they're going to use the sort of traditional horror comics and, and draw a lot on the history of like horror comics, but they're going to do it in a new and fresh and modern kind of way. Yeah. And I think, like, it kind of, John Constantine sort of never really, 
himself revealing information to Swamp Thing and never really learning fully about John Constantine's background in this volume. He's kind of like mysterious and he's kind of also drawing people to want to know more. I think that John Constantine and Swamp Thing are like a pretty funny buddy team. Yeah. Like once they get going, like I this issue I think is the most, the next one is the most problematic. It's got a lot of, I don't know, I don't think it holds up well. I think it holds up better than it could have. But I think, like, after this issue, when you start to see him and the relationship he has with John Constantine, you realize that, like, they're going to have some pretty interesting adventures together. Yeah, so the next issue is The Curse. It's the werewolf story. It's, uh... Our team is the same as the previous issue. It's a Donaldman in the set. Uh, and, um... In this one, the instead of being a... I think the werewolf... Is often kind of like it's a uh, you know rich people's fear of poor people. Uh, and this one, the werewolf is about um, generational oppression, feminist rage at oppression. Yeah, and that's kind of like that's what the part that really is offensive. It's also really strange that it's it was written in the eighties, but it feels like it might have been from the sixties. Why? You know, because it's like. She's a housewife, and she's got housewife rage. And it's like, in the 80s, things were much more open-minded for women. There were a lot more working women, working mothers, and things like that. Well, I don't think her problem is that she's not allowed to work, or that she doesn't have freedom. It's this, like, constant dismissal of her emotions and opinions, which I think is still very relevant. Like, the thing that sets her off is... Uh, when her concerns are dismissed as her being on her period. Yeah. So what happens on this issue is this woman is uh, having a shitty day. It is interspersed with visions of the Red Lodge uh, where... Women were sort of isolated during menstruation. Yeah. That's pretty much it. She gets super angry and turns into a werewolf and goes on a rampage and then <laughs> kills herself by jumping on a display of steak knives. Yeah, well, I think they sort of <laughs> foreshadow the steak knives because she's in the supermarket shopping for food for her husband's dinner. And then, first of all, has to buy a giant box of Tampax. Like, but they don't call it Tampax. Well, they so, can. That's a, that's a brand name. Yeah. Th- what is it called? Feminex. A solid generic <laughs> random. I think that like there's a couple things where this could not have this could have gone really wrong. One, I think the Native American thing could have gone really bad, but the the story goes out of its way to show that this sort of like attitude and this patriarchal structure of society is not unique to the culture they're referencing specifically, that it's it's global and throughout all of history and continues to now. I uh I think the moment before she jumps on the knives, where she's in the the supermarket and she's looking around, and the supermarket is this stand-in for society at large, and she says the Red Lodge is everywhere, and then, you know, uh, she just, like, gives up and jumps on the knives. I think that's still really effective and makes a lot of sense. Like, I think, though, so the premise is they buy a house. Yeah. 
And the house is built on not an Indian burial ground, but the site of the original Red Lodge from that Native American tribe that she keeps referencing. Yeah. That's the other thing that I think would could have been really bad that is better about this is we know, because we've read the previous issues, that it's not just that this is where the Red Lodge is. Like, that's not the only reason she turns into a werewolf. She turns into a werewolf because there is a sinister hand at work that is pushing things to a breaking point. Right, because obviously this is the first time she's turned into a werewolf during her period. Yeah. But I think two things. I think she should have just killed the husband and just looped off into the swamp herself. But she's but the patriarchy is still in power. Exactly. She can't go anywhere to escape, but the Red Lodge is everywhere. Society is built to isolate women and keep them from places of power. I think that's genuinely it's very sad and very like cogent still relevant but i also i kind of get annoyed with swamp thing being this like supportive male feminist that's kind of ineffective because he doesn't really do anything oh i think that's intentional there's a a problem here he should have killed the husband for her then yeah i don't know um this is the most swamp thing does nothing story but i also think it works because this is not his place to do anything. He says that literally. At one point, he's having a fight with the werewolf, and he's like, this is her place of power and not mine. Because it's like, yeah, dude, for all of your plant godness, you're still just a dude. But I also think it's it was a solid choice not to have him fight the werewolf. I like how she goes on a rampage, and it's like she goes to the bridal boutique, and then she goes to the, uh, like, you know, the like adult bookstore, and all the men are buying, like, pornography and then there's this sort of like just you know they show like her werewolf eye next to swamp things eye and he's trying to have a conversation and he like at one point when she's about to jump on the lives he does yell no like don't do it but he yeah he he wants to help but doesn't know how and he can't because like again i also like this story as um this is swamp thing up against society this is not his place it's not plants. He can't go into buildings and, you know, crush the patriarchy with a flood of water. It's just not a thing he can do. And uh, and he has to fail. Like, he can't, he is not going to succeed in this story no matter what he does or no matter how much he wants to. I also think this story skates away from being totally problematic now by being almost exclusively from her perspective. She's never portrayed as like an unknowable raging monster. We understand what she's thinking at every point and everything that she does, I think, is to some extent understandable. I think this is also, I mean, there's a lot of talk, especially now, about the depiction of women in comic books, you know, like overly sexualized and Mm -hmm. things like that. So I think that's sort of refreshing you know that she's not like a sexy werewolf yeah exactly and but it also made me think a lot about that story arc in the sandman series where the three witches you know where thessaly Mm -hmm. and they go on the moon road and this whole sort of idea of like what a woman is and what a woman's role in society is but the only thing i think i sort it sort of pushes it like sort of it's retroactive in that it's sort of the whole role of her as like a frustrated housewife. And I I think they sort of had to do that because there wouldn't be the plot of the story of her turning into the werewolf would sort of be, if she was like a working woman, you know what I mean? She had to have that frustration of her sort of 
well-meaning but absent-minded husband who didn't really respect her and her sort of, even though they have an equal marriage, the sort of um, societal expectations of what a woman in a relationship is responsible for. Like they have a dinner party and she's the one who has to cook and she has to Mm. make coffee. And like in a lot of modern relationships, that might not be true. But they have to make it that way so that the story works. Yeah, but I think the like... I think this story is valuable in that, like, there we there is other stuff that does this, but not enough um, fiction really wrestles with how fucked up the she's on the rag trope is. It's hugely dehumanizing and is used as a bludgeon against women and as a way to justify withholding power and agency from women all the time. And we're just so casual about it even now, like, as, like, a joke and, like, a butt of jokes... And I think this story, like, I don't know, like, obviously I'm not a woman, but I feel like this story does a good job of, like, articulating the frustration that people must experience at the persistence of that trope. Well, I think there is, I mean, there's a lot of cultural talk going on now about the sort of the unequal division of emotional work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this is sort of implying, that you could have, like, People who are, are aware of like e- equality and are feminist, and but then you, they still have that sort of societal hold on to like what is considered emotional work that women are supposed to do and men are not supposed to do. So there's like you know this whole thing about like caring for guests that come into your home. That's women's work, and that's sort of what this husband is implying during the cocktail during their dinner party yeah. is that you know she's the hostess mm-hmm. and i think that's sort of that's sort of like something that they're dealing with so i i mean i kind of was like offended as a woman in a way that like a lot of women my age get offended by things like this and i think it's the same thing it's wait so of, wait what was what was the thing that was offending you specifically i think this this whole thing about like the Red Lodge and then the, you know, the moon and, you know, like, pe- and women go crazy at this. You know, I think that's kind of like... I think this is a deconstruction of that. Right, exactly. Um, I think, like I said, it is shaky, though. I think without the context of the, like, this thing is manipulating people and the world, it would have felt like it was maybe playing a, a little into that trope. But we know that it's, like, not... I think it kind of... It like, also goes back to the thing I said before, where it's, like, one of the big things with Swamp Thing, like, the, the, one of the big, like, elements of the ethos of this comic is, like, there's no karma. Like, the world is fucked and good people will, can get cursed and suffer yeah. unduly. I think it was kind of perfect timing to read this now. I mean, it is from the 80s, but it's really culturally relevant today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... And, and especially if you look at, like, a lot of the, like, talk people have around, like, women that are running for president or running for office and, like, whether or not, you know, like, what particularly reactionary dudes will say about whether or not they should be allowed to hold power at all. But then also, I mean, they don't really delve into this. And it's kind of brought up in an insensitive way in Sandman. But there's, it's kind of like talking about what makes a woman a woman Mm -hmm. and then i think this is sort of focusing on the physical aspect of what makes a woman a woman and then you know and culturally there's lots of different ways that 
a person can be a woman. I think this story works better for me than some of them, them like Moon Road stuff and Sandman does because I think this story can be read in a way where part of the message is centering the biological aspects of womanhood as like the whole of womanhood is kind of fucked up and is like can easily be used as a weapon against women. I tell you what I thought was really interesting. These all of these stories have to do with classic horror mm-hmm. animals, monsters. I think it's interesting that traditionally in horror the werewolf is portrayed as a man. Yeah, the werewolf is the is a rapist usually is the the like uh symbological place that a werewolf holds. Whereas here it's it's it is it's a feminine figure and it's about this like stifled rage. Yeah, cuz I think traditionally you as a werewolf you have to be attacked by another werewolf and then you become a werewolf. And, yeah. you know, and then, so it's a cycle and it's like a moon cycle and it's kind of like a male character. Well, so this obviously, is interesting that it's a female character. Yeah. And it's also interesting that even as a woman and as a werewolf, she faces a choice and she makes her decision, which is not to kill her husband, which, yeah. and then to kill herself. Yeah. Which is... I mean, I, I I do not begrudge anyone that has a problem with the fact that this story ends in her suicide. But I think the, like, the fact that so much of this story is about, like I said, stifled rage. Yeah. Like, that makes sense logically to me that that's how her story would end here. Uh, I think the, the obvious, like, riff he's doing is, like, moon cycle, full moon, werewolf. Like, he's being, I, he's, you know... Yeah, I Being a little too it. clever, maybe, but I, I still kind of like that. But like, as a Gen X woman, I can totally 100% relate to that sort of futile rage, that sort of... Because, I mean, a lot of times when you're, when you're like, generally angry at the patriarchy, a lot of people are kind of like, it's a weird sort of futile rage to have. Yeah. And like being told that as a Gen X woman that like you're always complaining about everything. Not everything's about the patriarchy. Yeah. But like to me, everything is about the patriarchy. It is. So I can totally relate to this. And I can feel that I would want to be like a werewolf sometimes when I like see pink razors that cost more than, you know, regular colored razors. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to get at. The use of the supermarket as a setting I think is really good because like that is a a huge... um, convergence point for all of this stuff it's like here's the special yogurt you need so you can poop good because you're a lady <laughs> and you ladies can't be constipated and it's just like Ugh. and like of course that would be the the place that the final showdown would happen i also really like that this story avoids the myth of like individual action where it's like you can be as individually powerful as you you, you know you can be as individually powerful and as empowered a feminist as an individual, you want, but if you're in a patriarchal society, you need more than you to do, to change, like, to instigate change. She's so powerful that she could defeat the Swamp Thing in one-on-one combat, but went up against the structuralized sexism of the patriarchy, she can't do anything. So, if he made that today, she would just throw herself on a display of, like, pink pens? Yeah, probably. Something like that. <laughs> 
I mean, the knives are good because it's like, it's also like there's silverware, yeah. silver werewolf. But where's John Constantine during this whole thing? Hanging out in the forest, smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, this story, I don't begrudge anyone that has a problem with this story, but I think it does a good job of avoiding being totally problematic. I think that clearly he put a lot of thought into this. The art's also really great. I really like the way Swamp Thing specifically is drawn in this. He's like that very shaggy sort of Swamp Thing. There's a really cool image where when she turns into the werewolf, she basically throws herself up out of her skin. Yeah. You know, it definitely has like this sort of classic horror, you know, werewolf kind of like imagery, like those old movies and things like that. It's just like, it's just heartbreakingly sad. There's like the image at the end where she's turned back into a human and Swamp Thing is carrying her body out of the grocery store. And it's just like, I think it's just cratering. Yeah, especially where he's taking her out to the moon, you know, so she can... Yeah, she doesn't want to die inside. That's right. what she, she asked for. Like, and that makes sense. Like, she gets to, she has this moment of, like, freedom where she's not confined by this, like tomb of the patriarchy that is the supermarket yes. <laughs> it's a very 80s story this is like a very reagan era anti-consumerism blah blah you know sort of Q, thing the clash lost in the supermarket yeah absolutely <laughs> that would definitely be playing in the in the movie version of this um yeah i think you would probably play some patty smith or something and go along oh yeah yeah so then swamp thing says he's done he wants to go home and mm-hmm. john constantine in this sort of um, mentor slash devil's advocate. You learn by your own mistakes. I'll let you figure it out yourself, but I'll berate you while I'm doing it. Gives him a piece of paper and it says Louisiana on it. Yeah, so he's got to go back home uh, for the last two issues in this volume, which are Southern Change and Strange Fruit. This is what... uh, They're both by Bas- drawn by Bazette. The first issue is inked by Alfredo Alcala, who we've seen before. I think he also worked on Sandman. Um... And then the second issue is inked by Toddlebin and Ron Randall. This one, I think, is maybe... This one feels problematic to me. I do think that there's... Again, I think there's clearly thought put into this. But this is a dicey situation. Maybe even more so than the previous issue. I think... Well, I think... I kind of get the impression that... I mean, I I don't know. I don't know Alan Moore's level of American history. It kind of feels like... It's written by someone who doesn't quite understand the whole, like, Civil War and this whole, this whole sort of the impact that, like, slavery has had on American culture. So this is the, this is the ghost story, right? I thought it was the it's, zombie story. I think, I guess it's the zombie story. There is a later one that's probably the ghost story. Yeah, this is the dead returning to life story. And I think there's a core concept in this that... I think is really good. Same, I think all of these, the like, the core metaphorical concept that he has worked these classic monsters into is really good. And this one, it's like, the ghost is slavery. Slavery is this, and the, the slavery and the legacy of slavery and racial oppression in America is this malevolent force that lingers in these places and exerts an influence on people that they might not even realize. And there have, over the course of history, been these roles constructed for people to play. And the way that our racist society is set up, people are forced into these roles, whether they like it or not. And it affects everyone. Like, 
white supremacy is bad for everybody, regardless of whether you're white or black or whatever. It also, like, this story is a really good argument in favor of the destruction of Confederate monuments. I thought it was very, I, because after reading this, this was the part that sort of sealed it in my mind that this American Gothic story arc was actually more of a Southern Gothic story arc. And this really reminds me of, again, in the first episode of Dried Up Brain, where we talked about Flannery O'Connor, and you said Southern Gothic, it was something like Southern Gothic, it's a it's a horror story. It's a ghost story, but the ghost is always slavery. Yeah, I I I, I remember saying something like that. That sounds like a thing I would say, and, and that's, that's sort of what's going on here. Yeah, so it's kind of. But I thought, it, I guess it could be a ghost story. It could also be a zombie. story. I, I think it's more accurate to say it's a zombie. So this is about the returned dead. So what happens in this storyline is they're filming. This is also the he obviously. This is the Alan Moore watched Roots storyline. <laughs> so what's happening is they're filming this big prestige, like, TV drama about this um, plantation. And they're filming it on a real, on the ruins of a real plantation. And the central storyline is a love story between a slave and the wife of the plantation owner. Right. And... The people who are, they hire a bunch of the locals to be extras, and they start restoring this plantation house. And the act of restoring the plantation house awakens the memories of the land, I guess, which begins affecting the minds of the people working on the story and starts to twist them into playing the roles of the real people who lived and died in this plantation and then eventually it comes to a head and Swamp Thing uh, burns down the plantation house and the unquiet dead of the, you know, that have lived there are finally freed from the oppression of this place and rise up from the earth and go out a walk And it sort of ends largely unresolved where like one of them goes and he gets a job working in a movie theater. Yeah, but I think that was kind of sealing it up that these were, like, these stories were homages to, you know, early monster horror. I think it's interesting, though, that they're, like, it kind of sets the tone back again that the swamp is sort of like this genus loci where it's, like, there's, the swamp extends farther than the reach of just what swamp thing interacts with Mm -hmm. so like you know it spreads out and that the land and the environment that they're living in is also charged with like this elemental magic that you can see from swamp thing Mm -hmm. i think it's interesting because once the people start to get sort of possessed with the spirit of the house they start acting like the actual people who used to live in the house yeah, and then the the reveal of this story is that the hero is not really Swamp Thing. The hero is the spirit of at least one of the dead slaves who begins, who who having awakened uh, and using um, Abby's coworker Alice as a vessel, begins this like ritual to to raise the dead and destroy this place. I think it's interesting too because this is also one of the. Like, because she hasn't interacted with Swamp Thing at when he's, in quotes, working mm-hmm. on a case. 
that now she is because she goes to the plantation with Swamp Thing and the work that she does when she's talking with her co-worker and trying to help people like sort of become less possessed by these. She goes to the set to work as like a PA, right? Right. And she starts to realize the weird stuff that's going on there and she asks Swamp. She, you know, this is another one where Abby realizes what's happening first and is like, hey, maybe go do your job. Yeah. (laughs) And also and, another time where you don't see anything of John Constantine. No. But it's very emotional because it's dealing sort of with this sort of, it's dealing with class issues, racial issues. Because even amongst the actors, there's this dispute that the African-American actor who's going to play the slave is a much more popular actor than the male lead in the TV series. And that causes a sort of like jealousy and conflict that has nothing to do with the possession that happens later on yeah and the the male lead is this kind of like suck up liberal guy but he's clearly still harboring some unexamined racial prejudices uh he's it's very much the same sort of dude as like they're riffing on with like bradley whitford's character and get out they're like oh i'd vote for obama a third time if i could but like secretly you don't care about black people sort of guy right and he gets he becomes the avatar of the slave master. And uh, there's also this conflict where the, the the female lead, his the woman who's playing his love interest, like is almost openly racist and hates him. And he's clearly supposed to be like this kind of controversial figure. I said it was like Roots, but I think he's supposed to be more like a... I don't know who he's supposed to be. But he's, like, clearly had, like, some problems. He's, like, coming out of rehab and, like... Yeah, I think he's, like, meant to be, like, this sort of, like, troubled but successful um, actor. You know, kind of like, you know, there was a huge spate of those in, like, the late 80s. Yeah. He's got, like, like kind of a Robert Downey Jr. thing where it's, like, he had a very... Must have had a very public meltdown and now he has to rebuild his image. And he's, like, bristling at this... You know, he's he's the tool of this mechanism of Hollywood. And then that is reflected in like his pretend role as the slave. And I think it's kind of common with a lot of big stars that have like very public meltdowns and they're sort of, they're out of popularity until they redeem themselves. And they oftentimes have to do these sort of humbling to them roles where, I mean, he's like a movie star who fell from grace and now he's, I mean, it's not even like it is now where a TV show is like, just as prestigious as a, you know, as a movie or a movie career. He's forced to do a television role to build himself back up, you know, with the directors and things like that. So he comes in with an attitude himself. But I think it was interesting that, like, as this is going on and things are happening and they're happening in the minds of the of the people on the set, the people who are making the movie, when Abby shows up and she, one of the people thinks that another person had gotten stabbed mm. and then she shows them that it's like a movie prop and that, you know, she thought a guy was getting skinned alive and he was not. And it was yeah. kind of like, so whatever they were seeing in their mind wasn't actually happening. Yeah. And I think that's like this idea that like these constructs, these like racist constructs that we've, we've built and this legacy that. They don't have power. They only have the power we give them because they are social constructs. You know, the the knife is fake. But what what's the point of the one of them escaping from the fire and becoming and walking out of town? What is that about? 
Does that ever come well, up so again? I, no, I don't think so. So I think the idea, what he's getting at with the fire and the dead returning, is this like... There's the reason I was like, oh, this is an argument for destroying the the Confederate monuments. It's like the reverence for this time period and its artifacts help are are a tool that is used to continue to restrain people. And it's like by destroying the the house and freeing this guy, these people are given a second chance to live free from these restrictive structures. I guess I don't know. It's like. We need to destroy the legacy of slavery so that people can be allowed, so that, you know, we can get another chance to, to do good. And this person that had been dead before is allowed to live again and pursue a new life. There's that moment where the dead rise up from their graves. And one of them is Alice's dad. And there's this, like, bit of exposition where you find out that, like, he was poor and they, they buried him in this pauper's grave, uh-huh. which happens to be the slave's graveyard and the, like pained an unquiet dead there kept him from resting and that's really uh affecting i think like this dude's story of like you know you try to lay me to rest but we couldn't escape this you know racist structure and i couldn't even get the rest of the grave where i laid and now he gets to get up and move around again now that we've burnt down the plantation house and smashed up all the statues of nathan bedford forest so he won't destroy the patriarchy but he will burn down but they do it co- again. It's collective, right? There's a right. bunch of people there. It's not just one person raging. You ha- you have to have a group of people to affect real change. And also, a burning swamp thing needs to run into an old house. <laughs> yeah, I like how he's just like he's now he's like a fire elemental, and he's just sitting there going. Fire. Yeah, and he reflects on like I knew a man who died mm-hmm. like this, and like on the idea that like Alec Holland died in this fire and now he's using this thing to do good and he's like recontextualizing the trauma that he carries um, so that he can use it to help people, which I think is nice. Yeah, I think, but I also think he's also now, he's he's less fearful because he knows that his elemental body can be reconstructed. Yeah, like yeah. Swamp Thing from Volume One would not have set himself on fire and ran through a building, knowing that if he burned himself up, he could just grow a new. Well, he body. also would have been afraid of fire, which he does has no fear of now. I like at the very end. There's this sort of very romantic um, picture of Swamp Thing holding these flowers. It's done in these sort of pastel, fuzzy colors. And he's like gazing like wistfully off into the distance, holding these giant. He's like giant because the buds are very tiny in his hand. And I guess it was by it says by artist Michael Zoli. Yeah, Zoli. he did a Zoli. bunch of the Sandman art. We've seen a ton of Zoli. Yeah. Uh, I want to read the thing Swamp Thing's inner monologue when he's burning down the house. Burning down the house. <laughs> he says, "If the bad tree is to be destroyed, you must not bury its fruits." You must burn out the roots. The fire consumes me crackling like a current down wires of summer parched creeper. For an instant I recall another man who burned. His fear, his suffering welling up from my borrowed memory. Holland. Holland died like this. The recollection vanishes into searing redness. I see weary cadavers rushing to embrace the consuming liberating flame. I see a mansion turned to black cinder while a white man screams within it. And then green. Only green. But it's like we need to collectively come together... And destroy the these monuments to white supremacy and 
rejoice in their destruction is like the the message I'm getting from this, which I think is really good. I'm 100% in support of that. I think it's, I mean... Let's throw a party and burn down all the old plantation houses and stop <laughs> having fucking weddings there, you insane ghouls. Right. Well, there's Nate's rant for you. Check. <laughs> if you were playing Dried Up Brain Bingo and you had Nate's rant about... I already talked about colonialism <laughs> in this. We had a whole discussion about the patriarchy. This We're on fire for this one. Bingo. What did you think overall of the whole volume? I, lo- I like this volume a lot. I don't know if I like it as a whole as much as the previous one, just because I'm in love with that last, you know, issue where she eats the tuber so much. But I, re- I think this is all really good. Like, this is this is what I think of when I think of Alan Moore Swamp Thing, are these, like, horror stories with a social message with Swamp Thing at the center of them, and this, like, growing, not mystery, but, like, Ours and Swamp Thing's gradually increasing understanding of his nature and place in the world. And I think, like, I'm always worried. I've read this this uh, run a couple times. And I'm always worried that these stories aren't going to hold up. And I'm always surprised by how well they actually do. They're not perfect. They are flawed. And there's definitely parts where I could see a person who has a closer connection to the issues being discussed here being more upset and less patient with these stories. But I think... There's clearly, like, thought and effort at work here that I think keeps them from being total trash garbage through modern eyes. I, I agree with you. I think that with a lot of Alan Moore's work, there's this sort of seething underbelly of, like, rage that... Because you know he just gets angry a lot. Like, and, and Oh, these are very angry stories. These are very anarchist stories. Like, it's clear that, like... Each and every one of these, it's been like, the problem is society. Right. But I think, like, in the beginning, he's like, let me not get so angry so quickly. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to this point, like, John Constantine is just, like, a stand-in for, like, that fuse that sets that spark that causes that Because he really just... I mean, John Constantine's role is basically to, like, work up Swamp Thing. And mm-hmm. his first, you know first couple of meetings with him they don't technically work together to do anything he's just sort of poking swamp thing along under this pretext that he's going to teach him the skills that he needs or he's going to reveal information that he's going to reveal you know john constantine one isn't even though he's like a paranormal detective that's supposed to help people he never really ever really helped people and he doesn't ever reveal any of the information and half the time he says shit like that's exactly what I knew from reading this secret book. Don't ask him what he read. Don't ask him what he knows. And he will not tell you what the secret book is. So whatever information John Constantine has and claims to have, he never tells you what it is. That's a good point. But I think it's it's good because overall it sort of shows Swamp Thing becoming himself empowered and taking full control of himself and his connection to the elementals which i think is good it kind of feels like almost like to me like an interlude volume i think this is maybe but i think this is like it's building this is like it's building his understanding of himself it's building the tension of like this is just the beginning something bad is coming it's getting worse it's causing these problems and swamp thing isn't winning any of these like more people find out about vampires. People see the werewolf. 
there are zombies walking around in the earth. Like, whatever he was supposed to be doing, he's not doing it. And so this thing is coming no matter what. I think it's, I mean, Alan Moore does a really, he's really good at balancing the traditional influences that he is affected by and then turning them into a modern, fresh point of view. So you do see the classic horror tropes that that Moore uses throughout Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really sophisticated. Yeah. All right. Well, just one more thing. Um, we talked about this before on tour.com, these great read, re rereads that they do. Yeah. They have an Alan Moore reread where they read a lot of his comics and specifically the saga of the Swamp Thing. So if you want to sort of read more about the series and Moore and his sort of influences, there's a lot of that on, on the rereads. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually, it's a good thing you brought up the rereads because... Uh, the next episode we're doing, another novella, or in this case, a novelette. It is actually hosted on tour, and it is written by one of the writers of their big Lovecraft reread series. We're going to read uh, The Litany of Earth by Ruthanna Emrys, uh, which is like a dark fantasy sequel to The Shadow Over Innsmouth, so we'll probably also talk about The Shadow Over Innsmouth and Lovecraft in that episode, and then after that... We're going to do uh, volume four of the saga of the Swamp Thing, uh, which means at this point now that we finish this episode, we're halfway through this run. What? Give us like a quick peek about what happens in volume four. What's the main action that's occurring in volume four? Uh, let's see. Back? I think this volume four might be the conclusion of this story. If that doesn't happen in volume four, it happens at the start of the next one. But I'm pretty sure it's in this volume. We see the end result of this John Constantine swamp thing. Something's coming. Stop everyone from believing in magic storyline. Uh, we get the ghost story element of it. We get to meet Chester, who's the other, besides Abby, probably the other major supporting character of this run, even though I thought he showed up way earlier. And uh, Batman's there. Oh, yes, yes. Um, is Matthew done? Is his story done, or does he come back at some point? I think we get an issue where he actually dies. I could okay. be wrong. Well, but he doesn't actually really do anything else in the rest of the story. I don't think it's a spoiler alert that he dies, because we know he shows up. Yeah, we already read a bunch <laughs> of issues where he's that happen after his death. Right. But then also in Sandman, he shows up, and he's... That's what I was talking about. Oh, okay. Right. Anything else? Uh, not that I can think of. Okay, don't forget to water your plants. Yeah. Spoiler alert, stay tuned.